Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the challenge of defending democracy at home and abroad and examine the possibilities of alternative approaches since American military power is not deterring Iran, Russia or China and even North Korea, which is threatening war with South Korea. Joining us is Stephen Wertheim, a senior fellow at the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a visiting lecturer at Princeton University. He's the author of Tomorrow the World, the birth of U.S. global supremacy in World War II, and we will discuss his article at The Atlantic, Biden's Defense of Democracies Isn't Delivering. Then we'll get an update on life in Russia as the country becomes a garrison state with a wartime leader who started a war he has no intention of stopping. Joining us is Nina Khrushcheva, a professor in the Graduate Program of International Affairs at the New School and a senior fellow at the World Policy Institute. She is also an editor of and a contributor to Project Syndicate and the author of The Lost Khrushchev, A Journey into the Gulag of the Russian Mind. And her latest book, co-authored with Jeffrey Taylor, is In Putin's Footsteps, Searching for the Soul of an Empire Across Russia's 11 Time Zones. We will discuss her article at Project Syndicate, Preparing Russia for Permanent War. Then finally, we'll go to Argentina, which faces a general strike in opposition to the slash-and-burn policies of the chainsaw-wielding uber-libertarian new president, Javier Mille, who was recently elected promising a painful cure for the country's ills, which he blames on Marxist, communists, and leftists in general. Joining us from Buenos Aires is Federico Perlmutter, a freelance writer, critic, and editor who writes about Latin American contemporary literature tech history and culture, and Argentine and Latin American politics. We will discuss his article at the Zocalo Public Square, Where Did Argentina's Firebrand New President Get His Political Ideas? And before we begin, we are asking you to help keep Background Briefing completely independent, commercial-free and corporate-free, without paywalls or constant fundraising, as we keep providing you with a daily briefing which is free to the public and accessible to all those who are not in a position to contribute. You can make a tax-deductible donation to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online with this critical 2024 election year ahead in which the fate and future of American democracy itself will be decided. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. We barely survived a coup attempt on January the 6th, and like Hitler, Trump is telling us what he plans to do. On day one, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. So help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Stephen Wertheim, a senior fellow at the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a visiting lecturer at Yale Law School and Catholic University. He's the author of Tomorrow the World, the Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy in World War II and has an article at The Atlantic, Biden's Defense of Democracies isn't delivering. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Wertheim. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And of course, Biden is defending democracy at home and abroad. And do you see a connection there? Is it resonating? Uh, Obviously, Donald Trump admires the very dictators around the world that Biden is confronting, uh, most of all Vladimir Putin. There is a connection, to be sure, but there are multiple ways to to try to connect foreign and domestic policy. One of the things that we know, for example, is that the American people in recent surveys rank the promotion of democracy abroad among their lowest foreign policy priorities. So there's a an irony here. Obviously, the United States and I think most Americans want to see democracies thrive in the world. But at the same time, uh, what the American people most want uh, for a long time now, actually, has been for the United States to, uh, as the phrase has gone, do less nation building abroad and do more nation building at home. Joe Biden attempted to make an adjustment for uh, for the failures of America's post 9-11 wars that aim to change regimes and 
uh, build countries that weren't democracies into pro-American Western-style democracies. He uh, pulled the plug on America's two-decade war in Afghanistan and said the era of major military operations to remake other countries is over. And several members of his administration had written even before his his term in office began that they would shift from an approach of spreading democracy to protecting democracies where they existed. And we've seen the president put some of these ideas into practice uh, in each of the three focal points of U.S. foreign policy that have emerged as focal points uh, over the three years of his presidency so far, namely Ukraine, Israel, Gaza, and and Taiwan. But uh, what I think may be happening is that by adopting this approach, uh, it's actually fueling some domestic discontent, giving the impression that the United States is stuck again in these intractable conflicts and giving billions of dollars without a clear strategy for success. So even though the U.S. isn't directly fighting uh, in uh, ongoing wars in Ukraine and uh, between Israel and Gaza, though it is now fighting elsewhere in the Middle East, uh, I'm not sure that the president has crafted an approach that's actually uh, either reduced the costs and risks of U.S. foreign policy overall or made American citizens feel much better about their democracy. But Stephen, isn't this a part of a larger problem, and that is the extent to which foreign actors whipsaw the U.S. and drag us into particularly the Middle East? Um, I mean, if you go back to 68, you know, Sirhan Sirhan kills Kennedy, and that we end up with Nixon, and then... We know that in 1980, now we've learned uh, that the Reagan people made a deal with uh, Ayatollah Khamenei to hold up hostages, and we ended up killing Carter's second term and bringing us Reagan. And then you can have the miseries brought about by Saddam Hussein and the Iraq War and Osama bin Laden attacking the U.S. And now you've got... You know, as much as Biden's trying to get out of the Middle East, here we are getting dragged back in again by Hamas and by Netanyahu, who's obviously going to continue this war as long as he wants and leave Biden twisting in the wind. And we, there's no secret that uh, Netanyahu would, would prefer Trump to Biden, uh, as would uh, Putin. So how much do we control our own political destiny? Well, you're right. It turns out that a whole lot of actors overseas, uh, whether they're American partners and allies uh, or they're not aligned or they're adversaries, don't have the absolute best interests of the United States at heart. They'd either like to uh, defeat us uh, or they'd like our help uh, to serve their own interests and objectives. So I think that should be taken as a given. I think the question is, what are our choices? What do we want to do? What do we think is in our best interest? So there's no question that policymakers can't wave a magic wand and make the world sit still. But on the other hand, if we want to be not so much dragged into, say, conflicts in the Middle East, we have to take the actions ahead of uh, an attack like Hamas's terrible attack uh, in southern Israel on October 7th. We have to take those actions ahead of time to put ourselves in a position to, to be the master of our own policy. Uh, so, you know, to take that example, the Biden administration uh, came in and after cr many of them had criticized Trump's approach toward Israel, an extremely openly one-sided approach in favor of Israeli white right-wing policies, the Biden administration actually decided it was going to uh, not really make much of an attempt to have any progress uh, between the Israelis and the Palestinians. It was going to continue the approach the basic approach of Trump and his Abraham Accords, uh, which was to promote Israel's normalization in the Arab world uh, before uh, solving the Palestine problem. And this is what contributed, I think, to, uh, to Palestinians uh, feeling like there was no political horizon for, for them. Uh, and this is, I think, a very important piece of context uh, leading up to the current conflict they're in. Then once the conflict began, uh, President Biden 
chose to be extremely staunchly supportive of essentially whatever Israel has chosen to do. He had enormous leverage at the outset. He could have said, look, uh, I don't think it makes sense to have a ground invasion of Gaza. I don't think it makes sense to set a probably unachievable military goal of um, you know, trying to eliminate uh, Hamas, destroy Hamas. You should degrade Hamas. You should go after the people responsible for the October 7th attack. You should do it without killing large numbers of civilians. Otherwise, the United States isn't going to provide the political and military support that you might like. So, you know, I'm not saying the United States should be uninvolved in affairs like these, but I'm saying we have agency and we have choices. And uh, unfortunately, when we get into this framework of uh, seeing issues as black and white and completely identifying with one side uh, and being completely opposed to to the other side, whether it's because one side's a democracy and the other side's not, or for some other reason, uh, then it becomes harder to do the things that serve our interests the best uh, and also are conducive to to resolving conflicts rather than just adding our weight to, to one side of the conflict. But Stephen, at this point, Hamas is more popular than ever in the Arab world and in the Middle East in general. Iran, uh, with its axis of resistance through its proxies, is more, I think, more powerful than ever in the sense that the U.S. has been bending over backwards to try and make a deal. Obama did, and then Trump cancelled it, and Biden has tried to put it back on the rails, and Biden has signaled to the Iranians countless times that we don't want a broader, larger war. So I don't think we have any deterrence against the axis of resistance. And what do you do about the Houthis going after international shipping? In other words, is there something else happening here, the extent to which the U.S. is being challenged in spite of its enormous amount of military power and garrisons in something like 85 states? It doesn't seem to be deterring war. Well, I, I agree with you. Uh, deterrence, uh, certainly with respect to the Houthis, isn't happening. On the other hand, what we haven't seen so far is an expansion of Israel's war against Gaza north to engage Hezbollah or direct conflict between Israel and Iran or the United States and either Hezbollah or Iran. So. You know, there's no question that the Biden administration is working hard to to try to uh, deter those actions. I also think, though, that um, you know, it may not just be fear of American power that's deterred Iran to the extent it has so far, uh, but also Iran's calculation of of its own interest. Uh, is this really uh, worth it uh, for Iran right now to to launch uh, a a wider War. So um, I, the basic question, though, is how much does the United States uh, care about trying to manage the politics and security affairs of the Middle East? And our domestic politics, you know, what most Americans say since about the middle of the aughts, the answer has been we need to care less. And policymakers really haven't acted on that impulse. They have tried. Of course, they would like everything to, to simmer down in the Middle East. But the fact is, uh, peace in the Middle East is is elusive. And we just shouldn't assume that it's it's going to be around the corner. And so do we want to be this involved and face a very worrying prospect of of a war with Iran? That'd be extremely bad for the United States. I mean, think about what we're also trying to do to sustain support for Ukraine in its fight against Russia and to deter China over Taiwan and and elsewhere. So, um, you know, I think our choices are actually, um, in a way, starker than policymakers would like. The United States has to be willing, if it if it doesn't want to face uh, the kinds of escalation risks it's facing now, to disentangle ourselves from our alignments in in the Middle East. And although the United, the Biden administration came into office and certainly tried to deprioritize the Middle East. Um, it devoted very little of its national security strategy uh, in, that came out in 2022 
uh, to the Middle East as a region. Um, but it did not disentangle the United States from its uh, commitments, its military positions, uh, and its sense of responsibility in the region. And it didn't take very proactive uh, diplomacy uh, to to try to resolve the, the simmering conflicts that, that we know can explode, as indeed it has between Israel and, and Gaza. And even before uh, the war broke out after October 7th, uh, the Biden administration was discussing a, a so-called normalization agreement um, between Saudi Arabia and, and Israel, although I think the United States was as much a party, in which the United States was prepared to offer a formal security guarantee to Saudi Arabia. That would mean the United States, under a treaty uh, or a treaty-like instrument, would have a requirement to uh, go to war in defense of Saudi Arabia. Now, I just find it very hard to believe it would be, you know, uh, potentially desirable for there to be normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel. Depends on the circumstances, but if it's at the price of the United States uh, formally obligating itself to, to go to war on behalf of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, that indicates that our policymakers are putting an extremely uh, high value uh, on, uh, you know, preserving the status quo in the Middle East and are indeed willing to to get into a conflict if if one would occur uh, with a with a country to which we have a guarantee. So just in the last couple of minutes, then you mentioned Russia and China, the war in Ukraine. Putin's made clear that he's going to continue that. And I think he's hoping to bring uh, hoping that Trump will be the next president. And Trump, of course, is even talking about pulling out of NATO altogether. And of course, we had this terrible uh, incident today with a uh, Russian plane full of Ukrainian prisoners in a prisoner swap that normally they do deconfliction about when the plane is coming. But in this case, the Russians didn't. Uh, so they kind of baited the Ukrainians into shooting down their plane full of their own prisoners. But I, following this interview on today's program, I'm talking with a former granddaughter of Nikita Khrushchev, Nina Khrushcheva, who has an article at Project Syndicate preparing Russia for permanent war. She's been there for the last six months in Russia and says it's becoming a garrison state. And on the other front, with China, a couple of leading experts on North Korea, one of whom, Sig Hecker, spent a lot of time in North Korea looking at their nuclear project, which no, nobody else has had access to. They're suggesting now that Kim Jong-un has made a strategic decision to go to war against the South. So, again, it just seems that the U.S. military, in spite of all of its power, isn't in a position to have fight any more wars, and they certainly don't seem to be in a position to deter wars. So what do we do? We have to prioritize. We have to be serious about it. We have to make choices that are hard and uncomfortable for us. I don't think, as you suggest, that we can continue to go down the road that we embarked upon when the Cold War ended uh, and try to maintain superior power forward deployed in every strategically significant region of the world and try to have such an overwhelming power differential against anyone else that they would be deterred from taking any bad action or dissuaded from uh, rising in power and challenging the United States. I mean, that was the original theory that came out of the Pentagon at the end of the first Bush administration. And that's basically the logic that's guided our foreign policy since then. But the logic hasn't worked, as you're suggesting. Uh, the world's not standing still. The world's become much more competitive. China has grown uh, to become a great power. Russia has become hostile. Uh, and it's a it's a major power, particularly in in the nuclear area. And so I think, you know, we're going to have to have a different approach that's not just based on uh, imagining that the actors that we wish would sit still, will sit still. Um, and I, to me, I think we need to basically uh, transition, make a determined, gradual, responsible effort to determine to, uh, to transition to European leadership of European defense. The war in Ukraine actually does offer an opportunity to do that. 
we need to be disentangling ourselves from the Middle East, not at the moment, uh, because uh, uh, we face some some crises right now, but at the earliest available opportunity. And once things die down, people shouldn't just lull themselves into a sense of, well, now things have died down. So what's the problem? No, we have to look ahead and realize that um, if we don't want to be bogged down in the Middle East, then we need to disentangle ourselves and shift to uh, to a more neutral approach among the region's actors, all of which have their have their problems, uh, including our adversaries, but also including our, our our current friends. And I think that that leaves us to you know focus on security in in Asia, uh, deterring what is the most uh, formidable uh, challenge uh, to international security: the rise of China, and attend to transnational challenges like climate change that affect Americans more directly than than the conventional military threats of of other states, not to mention, of course, uh, rescuing our democracy at home. Well, Stephen Wertheimer, thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Stephen Wertheim, who's a senior fellow at the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a visiting lecturer at Yale Law School and Catholic University. And he's the author of Tomorrow the World, The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy in World War II, and has an article at The Atlantic, Biden's Defense of Democracies Isn't Delivering. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an update on life in Russia as the country becomes a garrison state with a wartime leader who started a war. He has no intention of stopping. Well, come on and let me know. Should I stay or should I go? Should I stay or should I go now? Should I stay or should I go now? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Nina Khrushcheva, a professor in the Graduate Program of International Affairs at the New School and a senior fellow at the World Policy Institute. She's also an editor of and a contributor to Project Syndicate and the author of The Lost Khrushchev, A Journey into the Gulag of the Russian Mind. And her latest book, co-authored with Jeffrey Taylor, is In Putin's Footsteps, Searching for the Soul of an Empire Across Russia's 11 Time Zones. And she has an article at Project Syndicate, Preparing Russia for Permanent War. Welcome to Background Briefing, Nina Grisheva. Thank you very much, Jim. Well, thanks for joining us. And you have been in Russia for the last six months, and uh, your article begins with Catherine the Great's uh, tour of Crimea that had been captured from the Ottoman Empire by Count Potemkin, who built this sort of Hollywood facade <laughs> of a happy village. And and you make the point that in many ways that is what Putin is doing today, but it's not a happy place by the sound of it, at least by, by what you've written in your article. Well, it was in Catherine the Great's years, it was not a happy place. Uh, that's why Potemkin had to paint a facade rather than actually work hard to make the peasants happy, uh, those he wanted to present to um, to the empress, to Catherine the Great. Uh, the thing about Russia, yeah, it's, it's absolutely not a happy place. It's a very, um, uh, it's, it's a, you know, it's absolute sense of despair and pretends that nothing is happening and you still cannot avoid it. Uh, one of the things that uh, Catherine the Great's peasants didn't have is that they did not have a um, functional economy. And Russia actually, despite all the sanctions and everything else, does have that functional economy, at least, at least now. So you can, if you really want to pretend that you live, you don't live in a uh, war state, you can. And that's the thing that um, kind of, surprising, not surprising, but but fascinating, I guess, the most is that uh, you if you if you want to immigrate inside your own existence, you actually can. There are plenty of restaurants, the theaters, the museums. 
where you can go to, of course, they always remind you of, of the war in many ways or Soviet past and imperial past, but you still can somehow escape. But the reason I was kind of going into the Potemkin village comparison is because Putin is being elected or whatever, whatever you call it, it's going to be his whatever 10th term, uh, technically his fifth, I guess, right? Is it his fifth? No, his fourth term uh, starts in March, uh, March 17. I mean, the supposedly elections. And so he was putting on uh, a show in the in an uh, exhibition complex, which Stalin was built in 39 during, you know, began to be built during the great purges of the late 1930s. It was a really grand Stalin high rises, kind of the the triple Chrysler, Chrysler building in New York. And the exhibit is all how incredibly Potemkin village Russia is doing. It's, you know, there's fashion and children and this and that. And then there is elsewhere war going on. And the reason I was shocked by that kind of combination of pretense that, that Russia is marching into the future, hugging hugging each other, is that there is an increase in numbers. It's not increase in, of violence, but if you read information, it's much more increase of violence of different group of people. Uh, children bully each other. Uh, there's all this kind of because the whole society that especially in the last two years, the division between us and them, the ours and the theirs. And that comes out through in relationship between teenagers, between um, various uh, religious faith, various nationalities and whatnot. And so the exhibition, the Russia exhibition at the uh, exhibition center versus the, re the violent reality that Russia experiences today. But the us and them, would that translate as uh, us being Russia and them being the Americans who Putin's propaganda basically blames America for the war, that in effect America is propping up Ukraine and using the Ukrainians to fight the Russians? Well, the them, it's, it's, that's, the them is now everybody. It's the, America is one of the unfriendly countries, as they call it. I would sort of put it unfriendly in quotes. It's unfriendly countries. It's the NATO members, it's um, Western Europe uh, or uh, European Union. It's the United States. So the unfriendly countries. So there is already division along um, the, um, the landlines. Of course, there is Ukraine. There is Moldova, which is also a country in opposition to Russia then. Uh, but then when you start really creating us versus them, it doesn't matter. It can be Muslim versus versus Christians, even if Putin says we have this unique combination of everybody. Uh, so it's once you, once you start dividing a society, I mean, you see it in America with Trump. Once you start dividing a society, there is really no... Uh, no limit to uh, according along which categories it can be divided. But as with America, actually, I mean, yes, he's, and in some ways, many Russians agree that though, uh, even those in opposition to, not even those in opposition to Putin too, that uh, the uh, invasion was not justified, but it was certainly provoked by the United States, the way they were leaking that information, almost baiting Russians, like, oh, when are you going to start the war? When are you going to start the war? And Putin finally said, fine, you want me to start the war? Here is the war. It's not to blame the United States, but certainly its own policy contributed to what is uh, what is happening today. In fact, there was a very grim joke uh, in, in Russia goes is that 10%, uh, at least 10% of Putin's support belongs to Joe Biden. Uh, and the Russians say it's 80%. I would say probably 60%, if, you, if we are honest, uh, support, uh, support Putin, although probably over 60% do not support the war, and we now see it because there's a opposition candidate, which was supposed to be, I mean, I don't know whether it was agreement with the Kremlin, uh, uh, Boris Nadezhdin, uh, who is in, who is a candidate, technically a candidate for the elections, uh, and he's against, he's openly against war, he's openly being against uh, militarism, he's openly against uh, kind of the Putin formula of, of power, free elections and whatnot. Something that in Russia you can actually go to prison for right now if you claim uh, this kind of beliefs very openly, and yet he's a candidate. So there is a question whether it's a Kremlin, Kremlin project, but I'm, I don't know if you've seen it in the United States, but they've been 
lines and lines and lines and cities all over Russia signing to uh, make sure that his candidacy gets on the ballot. So that's in opposition. And when uh, people joke that 10% of, of, of uh, uh, Russian, it's a bad, I mean, it's a grim joke, it's not a real joke, belong to Joe Biden, is that after the war, the United States and Europe, but the United States went so hard against all Russia. Everybody was a blanket sanctions, was blanket blame. Uh, there's still blanket blame of, you know, collective responsibility and whatnot. And, you know, show me the country that wants to be defeated. When there is a claim we want to defeat Russia, please, who wants to be defeated? So people who oppose Putin still are very upset with the United States that instead of helping them oppose Putin, it actually blend, branded them all as, uh, as aggressors and imperialists and, and so on. But how many people are left? I mean, you talk about the exodus of people in business. In terms of the division between the people that accept Putin in the way that this is the, the kind of acceptance of, of a strong leader and the Stalin centers are being built all around, around the country now vis-a-vis -vis what brief flirtation there was with democracy and liberalism. Is there, is there anything left? Well, to I mean, work with? Have, the, have people left the country or, or the very people that you're talking about feeling disillusioned about the United States, lumping them in with, with Putin? What's the breakdown, if you will? Well, I'm I mean, I, I, it's hard. I cannot give you the breakdown. But when you say what's left, I mean, it's 145 million people. Right. So say, okay, 2 million left. I would even say 3 million left. A lot remained. I mean, you know, not all 140 million support Putin. So some remain and those who remain, but even those who left, in fact, you know, they face uh, uh, discrimination. It's very difficult to get visas. It's very difficult. I mean, for example, Germany was confiscating, confiscating people's cars all through the summer, those who actually were branded in Russia foreign agents. So I'm sorry. No, it's uh, what do you mean? What's left? Of course, there are people left and nobody's nobody's working with them precisely because it is sort of, oh, you know, all Russians are guilty because they're all imperial. I mean, some left. There's a lot of, yes, there are many, there are much fewer people when I'm there, uh, you know, when there are events at Novaya Gazeta. I mean, Dmitry Muratov, the Nobel Prize winner, he's in Russia. Uh, uh, and, and, and others, and, you know, the events at Novaya Gazeta, of which he's an editor. And there are much, many, there are fewer of us, but we're still there. We're still trying. We're still... Uh, trying to speak up. I mean, Nadirjan, Kremlin or not, it's it's a very important uh, it's a very important social test. So all these things that um, uh, in the last two years the Kremlin tried to do basically make sure that anybody who opens their mouth is 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 arrested, sort of really to put to put a muzzle on whatever is left of civil society. Uh, suddenly, these people. I mean, it's an it's a it's an official gathering of gathering of signatures for this candidate. So they go, and that's a small way. At least this way, they can express uh, they express their opposition to the system uh, just by standing in line and signing uh, signing this signing this petition, knowing that at least for now they're not going to be arrested for that because it's an official it's an official process of collecting signatures. So if uh, if uh, uh, those who are in charge of looking at Russian civil society would look at the signs like that, you know, the 50% that I think you and I spoke about early in the war that, and I continue to exist if we insist if we want, if we want the breakdown, 20% for the war, maybe slightly more now, because as I said, the grim joke, 10% of support to Putin belongs to Joe Biden, maybe, I don't know, 25, something, something. 30% is firmly against the war. And, and many of them unfortunately left, but still, and 50% basically are trying to survive so they're not going to be killed by the system. Uh, and kind of a, they immigrate into their own, own inner space. And so suddenly these people, these are the people that now go and sign petition for, uh, for this new potential candidate. So these are the people that could have been worked with. And sure. they won't. Well, the U.S. Uh, foreign policy has never been particularly deft and subtle, but you're suggesting that there's kind of a collective punishment going on. But when we did speak at the time when the war broke out, you were, you were surprised that Putin did this. Is it possible that he started the war not so much provoked by the Americans, but 
to essentially turn the country into the military-industrial state that you write about in your article, Nina, in the sense that uh, he's a wartime president and that will ensure his tenure, if not dissimilar to what's happening now in Israel with Netanyahu, who's polling at about 15%, but as long as the war goes on, he's still in the saddle. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to, it's, you know, history doesn't know conditional tenses. And I still think that if diplomacy were more engaged, it could have been, perhaps could have been avoided. I really don't know. Because the way then, it, not only the way it broke out, but the way the KGB state, and I we spoke about it before I use it, it doesn't have a KGB name anymore, but I use it collectively. Uh, the KGB state, the oppressive state, immediately jump, jumped in to curtail any potential freedom. Perhaps, because I, you know, often it's wag the dog. I mean, people start wars of those leaders, this kind of leaders start wars because they need to stay in power. And certainly Putin now, and that's what I mean, it's going to be a forever war because he needs this war. It's justification for uh, for the last, I don't know, at least two years of his existence, why he hasn't left power, why there is no, uh, there is no uh, successor to him. So absolutely. But I think the original part of it, and I continue to think that, I'm not insisting that I'm right, is that, uh, and you and I spoke about it earlier, uh, in, in probably in even many programs, I mean, this man does have a Napoleonic complex. I mean, it's, it's not a Napoleon, whatever, the whatever complex. He's not very tall. He was a KGB major. I mean, I think when he graduated, when he left KGB, retired, he was a lieutenant colonel, but, he, but it was a uh, it was an honorary title, honorary rank. His actual rank was a major, and he was surrounded, a lot of people in his cabinet, they're generals, they were real KGB generals, not that they're something to be proud of, but still they were generals. So for him, the way he was always, de- not always, but often dealt with the West is was disdain, disrespect, I'm telling you I matter, and it's like, oh, you know, Barack Obama, you and I spoke about this, oh, it's just original power. And for people with a Napoleon complex, that's, that's bait. I mean, it doesn't as I keep saying, uh, the war was absolutely not justified, but Putin felt that in order to prove himself, he does need to do it. That, that is no excuse, but it's some sort of an, an explanation. Whether it would have begun anyway, I don't know. But, you know, sometimes you ask me what uh, Nikita Khrushchev, my great-grandfather, would have, uh, would have thought of that. And I always think he would have thought, we don't know whether Putin was ready to have KGB oppressing society to the almost to the point of Stalin. But Khrushchev would have said, what did you want? That's how it happens. When you have a KGB in charge, ultimately, they would have no other way but to go this direction. So just in the last couple of minutes, though, you do mention that, to quote your article, you see this truth in contemporary Russian films and television. You mentioned a Russian crime drama, The Boy's World, The Blood on the Asphalt. But there's some earlier films, and Leviathan, for example, and another film about a, a young boy that goes missing as a marriage dissolves. Same director, incredibly powerful, but deeply, deeply despairing. And is that a real reflection? I mean, is that is that something that you share that with what's left of uh, this? group of people that you're talking about? That, well, uh, absolutely. Zvagins have left the one, the director that you mentioned, uh, the one who did Leviathan, and uh, uh, in the Russian it's called Nilubov, which is non-love, I don't know exactly the, the English, uh, the English, uh, the way it is uh, right. translated in English. Uh, well, yes, these are very powerful films, but also, as you know, in all great artists, it is a reflection of society. It's not a reflection of all society. I mean, that's that's the Dvagintsev part. I mean, he was, uh, that was sort of the, it's not, I mean, here you can say hot button niches, but these are pain, uh, uh, these are pain points. I mean, he was talking about pain points. It wasn't, it wasn't a reflection of all society, although, of course, it was part of that uh, kind of societal angst, absolutely. When I was talking about this boy's, um, the boy's word, is it is, the anger is palpable because, for example, you have, 
you know, normal life, pretend you have restaurants, you have cafes, you have clean streets, everything is, everything is working. And every billboard is says, join the hours, basically meaning join the army. If you are not, the hours mean that everybody else who's not joining the army is not ours. Somebody's against you. And so every billboard is has this military man or a woman on, on, on top telling you that Russia is in danger, you need to defend it, and if you don't want to defend it, that you are an enemy and whatnot. And that certainly was not at the time when Leviathan was made, mm-hmm. or even the non-love was made, because that that it was pain, point, uh, pain points, but now it's, it's absolutely pervasive everywhere. Well, Nina, I thank you for joining us. It's very heartbreaking to hear this. It really but- is. I mean, Putin wants this war to go on, obviously, just as Netanyahu wants his war to go on. But uh, what you tell us is that there's so much opposition, even if it's silent and inactive. Can there be something rising up from the ashes, to use an old tired metaphor? Well, it is already rising from the ashes because before this new candidate, Nadezhdin, and by the way, Russia is a country like with Potemkin Village and whatnot because reality is sort of not not... Uh, not always real or or absolute, Uh, names are very significant. Putin's name originally was called the way, and, you know, there was a question what kind of way Putin will show Russia after the chaos of uh, the Yeltsin years, and now we know what the way was. And Nadezhdin is in translation as hope, so it's very significant that suddenly he just opened, opened up something we thought was dormant and cannot... Uh, cannot come out. There've been uh, quite quite a few protests against uh, in in the provinces against uh, various types of of oppression. So yes, and you know the last thing that I want to say that after Stalin came Khrushchev, and so yes, it's hope. It's it's it is it is hopeful and possible. Well, Nina Khrushchev, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Nina Khrushcheva, who's a professor in the Graduate Program of International Affairs at the New School and a senior fellow at the World Policy Institute. She's also an editor of and a contributor to Project Syndicate and the author of The Lost Khrushchev, A Journey into the Gulag of the Russian Mind. And her latest book, co-authored with Jeffrey Taylor, is In Putin's Footsteps, Searching for the Soul of an Empire Across Russia's 11 Time Zones. And she has an article of Project Syndicate, Preparing Russia for Permanent War. We're going to take a brief station break and back and go to Argentina, which faces a general strike in opposition to the slash-and-burn policies of the chainsaw-wielding uber-libertarian new president, Javier Mille. I'm an engineer on a hundred dollars, and I don't have any more. I'm 25, and I don't know what I want. Никаких оснований гордиться своей судьбой Но если бы я мог выбирать себя Я снова бы стал собой Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from Buenos Aires in Argentina is Federico Pelomuto, who is a freelance writer, critic, and editor based in Buenos Aires. He writes about Latin American contemporary literature, tech history and culture, and Argentine and Latin American politics. And he has an article at Zocalo Public Square, Where Did Argentina's Firebrand New President Get His Political Ideas? Welcome to Background Briefing, Federico Perlmutter. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Federico. And the nation of Argentina is poised for a massive strike against this new leader who rose to fame campaigning with a chainsaw that he was going to tear uh, down the uh, Argentine establishment. And he seems like he's still tearing stuff down. And it's difficult to know. I mean, he was recently at at Davos, where he just railed against anything on the left and liberals. As much as he tears things down, it's difficult to understand what he actually stands for, except taking a chainsaw to everything. What does this guy stand for? Yeah, well, his speech at Davos was certainly um, a very intense sort of translation of what he has been advocating for within Argentina, sort of in a, a global scale. He, it was his first sort of global opportunity to speak, so to so to say. Um, 
As for what he stands for, I think it's both, as my article attempts to argue, is both very new insofar as it synthesizes a kind of U.S. libertarian, kind of Trump-adjacent, sort of very familiar, you know, conservative mode that is now in vogue around the world with Orban in Hungary or Boris Johnson or Trump or Bolsonaro, the list goes on and on. And it's also old insofar as it's fundamentally shock doctrine, you know, austerity programs, you know, cut spending and uh, in this case, increase taxes much to the chagrin of many of his most loyal followers, basically resolve Argentina's admittedly massive budget deficit. Well, the plan is to dollarize the economy, and that was yes, that very... was certainly a campaign promise. Though one he has since backed away from, set calling it a goal for something like in thirty years or thirty-five years or a sort of longer longer-term goal. But yes, effectively, the measures are intended to weaken the Argentine peso as much as possible, free trade as much as possible, uh, and in general facilitate the flow of you know capital and lower taxes, et cetera. Right. Well, but you mentioned Orban as a model. Orban is a kleptocrat, first and foremost, uh, in the mold of uh, his idol, Vladimir Putin. So if this guy is modeling himself on American libertarians, I mean, I guess the most powerful libertarians in this country are people like Peter Thiel, who bought himself a senator, J.D. Vance, who is like-minded, and these people hate liberals. That seems to be their the, defining in the way that uh, Miller hates the left as well. But again, it's difficult to know what they stand for except protecting wealth and power. Yeah, well, I think Millet's argument uh, or Millet's proposition uh, is to bring Argentina back to a sort of idealized 19th century mode when Argentina was, according to him, though this is not entirely true, one of the world's leading economies, uh, you know, a, bum, a booming nation ruined by what he calls a hundred years of collectivism, uh, whatever that is. Though, of course, what he forgets in that account is that, you know, 19th century Argentina was a sort of aristocratic nation run by a small cluster of extremely wealthy agricultural farming families who exported everything and the rest of the country was, you know, uneducated and poor and miserable. So, but that's his vision. So in that sense, he does not resemble Orban, though Orban did, funnily enough, attend uh, Millet's inauguration, as as did other sort of U.S. allies and non-white U.S. allies, including uh, Vladimir Zelensky. Well, but the model for these American libertarians, and I guess they have this in common with Putin, is that they're all for an oligarchy. I mean, one of the biggest bankrolls of libertarianism in this country are the Koch brothers or the remaining Koch brother. And they're obviously, <laughs> they have both plutocrats and uh, advocates for plutocracy, as is uh, Peter Thiel. So if he's harking back to a plutocratic, aristocratic kind of rule in Argentina's uh, 19th century, is that, is that what he wants? to turn Argentina into you know, a handful of ruling oligarchs running the country? I think, I think his, his policies fundamentally indicate the answer to that question being yes to a large degree. I think he would never say so because Argentina, as again my article says, is a deeply collectivist nation unlike the US where you know, unions still hold a lot of power even though not as much power as they did before. There are many sort of social organizations and community organizations through which uh, the majority of the population, which is impoverished, we are a country with around with almost 60% poverty rates um, recently, and or, or rather 50% poverty and 60% childhood poverty rates, um, all, of that, all of which is to say there is a strong collectivist bent to Argentine society, even though Millet's vision is fundamentally individualistic and thus by consequence sort of leads to wanting to undo these collective organizations and as you rightly point out sort of bring Argentina closer to the vision of the U.S. raised by everyone from the Koch brothers to Murray Rothbard who is his big idol to you know Milton Friedman and their ilk. Right. 
But isn't there a dangerous element to his government in the form of his vice president, who comes out of the military? She's a huge, has huge sympathies for the murderous dictators who turned on their own people in the most ruthless and disgraceful way. Yes, precisely. Though I think, I, I think their their relationship has been somewhat conflictive at the moment with, uh, you know, there have been many sort of falling ins and falling outs. They clearly do not, Millet does not care that much himself about that sort of, if you will, culture war element that his vice president, Victoria Bicharruel, brings to the table. But certainly her commitment to defending, quote unquote, the rights of the dictators and their accomplices of which, from whom her father was not at all distant, having worked, uh, having served in the military under Aldo Rico, who would become a kind of insurgent, pro-military insurgent during the democracy era, among other things in the 80s. All of which is to say, certainly, Villarreal is a dangerous and quite scary element, though hopefully one that will remain to some degree marginal. However, um, Millet's policies so far have included extremely severe restrictions on the right to protest, on the right to demonstrate publicly, including uh, restricting social benefits for recipients who attend protests uh, and similar policies that have been quite controversial and some of which are currently being debated inside Argentina's Congress. So what will the general strikes achieve, do you think? I mean, they're about to happen, aren't they? Does the whole nation get shut down? Uh, yes, I think the general strike has been controversial. Um, it's the earliest the general strike has ever been called for a president in Argentina's history. Many on the left as well have called it somewhat premature. The hope, I believe, for the general strike is to show a broad base of opposition to the Millet's two sort of bigger projects at the moment, one of which is an executive action or what we call the decree of necessity and urgency that introduced a broad set of legislative changes, everything from the sort of anti-protesting measures I mentioned before to allowing soccer clubs to become private entities. And there's also a what is called being called an omnibus law. So a big package of many, many laws, I think reshaping something around 300 regulations, again, aimed fundamentally at economic matters and attempting to deregulate the economy, lower restrictions on imports, exports, etc. But Federica, how do you deal with the reality that the majority of citizens in Argentina voted for this guy. It's the same thing that happened here in the United States in 2016. You know, Trump did not get a majority of the popular vote, but he won the Electoral College and became president. And just about everybody I know were just shocked, you know, couldn't believe it was happening. And here he is coming back again, Trump. So there's a lot of soul searching going on in this country, but what do people see in this guy, Donald Trump, who's such a you know, disgraceful, incompetent fool and a narcissistic sociopath? So is, this, is there reckoning going on in Argentina to try and understand why people voted for this guy? Because he did win the last election. I think yes. I think two things are going on at once. On the one hand, Argentina has an illustrious and long-lasting public protest tradition uh, that goes back almost a century. Uh, I mean, people do not hesitate to take to the streets when they are unhappy with the government. And so uh, resisting on the street has been a kind of priority for much of the left, particularly in this case, this general strike, which is being called by this sort of central uh, union uh, in the country. At the same time, I think what a lot of people have been struggling with is the fact that Millet is remarkable, not least because he is the first president in memory, probably, I, as far as I know, at least in most of the world, to have won a majority of the vote promising that austerity measures would come. That is to say, he did not renege on campaign promises to preserve well-being for people or anything like that. He campaigned on saying he was going to slash benefits, slash subsidies that he was going to deregulate the economy, that he was going to you know, do all of these things. 
uh, and people still voted for him. And so I think there has to be a sizable interrogation, particularly on the sort of Peronist left, Peronism being the sort of critical mass movement in Argentina over the past hundred years and currently uh, having just ended a kind of 20 year reign almost over the country uh, that examines precisely how it is that people became so unhappy with its economic policies in particular, but also with its broad proposals over the past eight or 10 years that it simply was beaten by what is essentially an upstart party with no real infrastructure who three years ago was basically a meme candidate in the House of Representatives. So I think that is going on currently and will go on for a while. But in the meantime, I think the priority is also being placed on resisting Millet's measures actively. So it sounds like a suicide pact that the people have with this guy. If they accepted that he was going to slash and burn and now it's happening and it's just going to get worse, isn't it? I can't... That, that would be my prediction. Uh, I think it's less of a suicide pact, I think, and more of a desperation measure. I think the Peronist policies over the past four years, so from 20 or late 2019, excuse me, December 2019 until December 2023, in, which included the pandemic. And so it wasn't entirely their fault, but were rotund failures. The economy was, you know, inflation was through the roof. People just did not have enough money. It felt like nothing was quite working. And so I think it is as much a suicide pact as, as it is a kind of desperation call for someone to fix the problems that have been sort of crushing the majority of Argentina's people who, again, are poor or impoverished more and more every day now with Millet in power. But, you know, the question, as many have asked, is, is or, or what many have posited is that, you know, in, an, in a landscape where things are so bad for so many, how much worse could it get for them? Is that, I think, the fundamental thing that we need to consider in drafting a sort of future politics that is more appealing and that can fight against Millet's draw, so to speak. Well, that means, uh, just in closing, that means rev reviving the left, right? And obviously the, le the left is also tainted by failure, is it not? Exactly. I think, I think Millet's, Millet's rise is as much a remarkable sort of story of you know, a right-wing ideologue being so self-persuaded and insistent and assertive that he managed to, you know, persuade much of the country, but also of a pro of a leftist project that had been extremely successful, you know, 15 years ago and even 10 years ago, uh, which has simply fallen down the wayside and proved ineffective, uh, not least, and it should be stated, not least because of you know lowering commodity costs argentina's economy is still dependent on you know fundamentally the price of soy and related commodities uh and also in the past few years raising interest rates from the fed in the us have also made it difficult for argentina's economy to bounce back but again the question is as much uh for the left is how to reimagine a political and economic program that can win back the mass broad base of support that had supported that project for, you know, the last 20 years. Well, Federico Palomato, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I'm speaking with Federico Palomato, who's a freelance writer, critic and editor based in Buenos Aires. He writes about Latin American contemporary literature, tech history and culture and Argentine and Latin American politics. And he has an article at the Zocalo Public Square, Where Did Argentina's Firebrand New President Get His Political Ideas? And he joined us from Buenos Aires. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. 
And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Appear.